Okay, welcome to the, the Locker Room podcast. We've got our second live show. Uh, we previously did a coaching roundtable with uh, Colin Nally, uh, Ross Bennett and Stevie Porcher, which was really popular. So we've come back for a version number two around youth coaching. Um, I'm completely sick of Ross Bennett taking over my show the last few weeks. So I'm back in the hot seat here on Dealey and I'm, I'm hosting and I've got one of our own, um, Barry Milan, hurling coach. Um, and Barry is founder of Active Sports Coaching, is a PE lecturer in Mary I Limerick uh, and a coach developer with the GA and the Camogie Association. Barry, you're, you're very welcome. Thanks for coming on. Glad to be here, Kieran. Stuff. Uh, also, then we've got Shane Smith. So Shane holds an honours degree in sports science and health and a master's in education, previously working as a, a GPO with m myself in Dublin. Uh, he's a primary school teacher now, actively, actively involved in coaching uh, with under sevens, hurling and football, under nines, camogie and senior football. Um, and Shane is uh, personally responsible for Dublin going for a six in a row this year. You're very welcome, Shane. Thank you very much, Kieran. Great, great to be here. And that's, of course, not true at all. <laughs> Last but not least, we have Brian Cuthbert. So Brian is, amazingly, he manages to be primary school principal in Bishopstown Boys School, um, supports the coaching and games development in Croke Park in relation to player and coach development. Um, also is chairman of Bishopstown GA. Um, and also, he says co-wrote, but I say wrote, uh, the recent 2019 GA Talent Academy and Player Development Report. Um, and Brian, I think we're, we're going to have to get you on on a different time just to specifically kind of delve into that document and run through it. I've, I've, got, I've got it here with me tonight. Okay, it's going to be an exam at the end of the, the session to see how well you know the document you wrote yourself. Um, but we might touch on that, but I think that will be perhaps a different podcast show just to, to, to really go into that one into depth. Um, but you're very welcome. Thanks for coming on. No problem. Thanks for making it on. Looking forward to the chat. Good stuff. Good stuff. Okay. Um, just to remind people, head over to dailysportscience.com. There's loads of stuff going on at the moment with um, some webinars with Stevie Poacher. Um, there's CPD session for coaches over the winter with Ross Bennett. There's some GA positional videos going up there as well, which you can find. Um, and also thanks to our sponsors, Ripped.app. Um, we need to pay the big guns. Joe Coulter is, is taking most of the money. For, I can't even uh, feed my young little six-month-old little chap. The money is flying into Joe Coulter's account. So thanks for the sponsors for helping us out with Joe, keeping him on board. Okay, first topic, what we'll, we'll focus on, lads. We're going to have a quick breakdown of the child, youth, and adult. Okay, and anybody who's in the coach development with, with as regards GA or, or who have done coach, uh, coaching courses will have come across that concept. Brian, I'll start with you because you help write the, the new GA development framework. Um, what's your breakdown of, of, the, of the child, youth and adult and what ages do you specify child, youth, etc.? Yeah, um, I suppose first thing, Ron, uh, so people probably know the last two and a half, three years of GA have gone uh, around county to county on the back of John Horan sending uh, a kind of, of a, a missile across the bow of, uh, of the GA in terms of what was going on at academy level. So out of that spawned a, a player development framework uh, being developed by the same committee. 
and that's the that document there that you held up while ago. But in that player development framework, so everybody is aware again, uh, there's a new approach to player development across the organisation, footwear, camogie, uh, ladies football, and GA hurling football. And it's based on an Australian model called FTM, if anybody has ever seen it. Uh, and basically you have a foundation stage, you have the talent stage, uh, and we, you, for us, we have an elite stage. We didn't include the M stage at all in terms of mastery. We, did, we, just, we just left that off. So the foundational stage, and you, you'll see an awful lot of this coming in the next 12 months, uh, two years, any of you guys who are involved in Coach Ed, which I presume all of us are. Um, the foundational stage is going to have three levels in it and, and possibly even four when it comes out. Um, but at the moment, there's, there are three levels in it, F1, 2, and 3. So F1, if you take the, the old stage of child, um, so from the initial voluntary nursery level um, up to maybe when the child is seven or eight. Uh, I'm very slow to use chronological mm. age brackets for this now, but yeah. just to keep it simple, up until the child is seven or eight, they're playing F1. Then they go into F2, um, which is from eight, obviously, to the point of formal competition. Normally in GA, uh, even it's changed in the last couple of weeks, your formal competition is starting at under 13, probably, from here on in. So that space from, from 8 to 13 is F2. And then F3 takes us from uh, 13 formal competition right until the time that you uh, no longer play Gaelic games. Um, so that's the club space. Uh, and I can go into that in more detail if people want to in a while or if there's more questions around it. Yeah. Then over to the right of that, if any of you have seen the framework, there's an intersection of, of circles where you have the T space, talent one, two, three, and four. Uh, one being uh, schools of development or schools of excellence, call them whatever you want to, but initial involvement in academies. Two, uh, breaking into maybe under 16, uh, moving on to 17. Three, then uh, moving on up onto you know under 20 teams. And finally, four, you're inside and most, most players now are, are at third level. Uh, and they're playing Sigerson Fitzgibbon before breaking into the elite um, uh, in senior to county game. So if we take all those spaces and if we populate all those spaces with age appropriate activity and competition and proper uh, age appropriate coaching, and we have outcomes for all those spaces so that we can actually see when it's possibly the right time for transition and actually manage those spaces in terms of transition, we just believe that we have a better model going forward or framework, call it model framework, whatever you want. Um, for the GA to actually be very clear on what it is we want to achieve in terms of player development. So that's very, very quick here on, but yeah. you probably have to have the framework front of you to actually fully understand it, but I would say most people have seen that at this stage. You know? Yeah, I think it's a thing that will come on board much more in the next few months and next year, yeah. won't it? Yeah, like to be fair to Crow Park, you know, they, they get, you know, I'm not saying because I've been involved in a bit in it, but they do get bashed around a bit uh, for approaches, right? But I've been in about maybe seven or eight long meetings over the last, you know, you know, over the last twelve months, where coach education, especially, has been cut apart, chopped up, and and re-envisioned visions to kind of resemble what people want on the ground. So I think people are going to be very, very excited when they see this actually delivered. And that's the challenge for Crow Park to actually deliver what they're trying to do because it's not going to be easy. But they're going to be delivering coach education based on the player development framework. So if you think about it, the F1 space, that nursery space, there's going to be just particular coach education all around that and CPD aligned to it. So I would say in time, it would be a bit like um, coaching credits 
that you would get, you know, for different CPD workshops you'll go to, you'll get different amount of points and you'll be able to build up credits to actually move through the levels and achieve, I wouldn't call them badges like as in the FA soccer stuff, but achieve recognition in terms of uh, the qualification in terms of coaching. And same with F2, same with F3 and same with all the T spaces. Mm -hmm. So at the moment, anybody could walk into any of those spaces and coach, but you mightn't receive any uh, support from the GA in terms of what you should be doing at those levels. But I think that's all going to change. Yeah, I think I think the coach ed education model, which myself and Barry and Shane and a lot of people on this webinar and podcast w would have been part of, it probably needed to be renewed and you know, re-envisage, as you mentioned, and, and just a fresh kind of a, approach had to, had to be brought to it. It's interesting because in, in the professional soccer arena, it's chronological in terms of from under nines to under 11s, we call foundation. From under 12s to under 16s is youth development. And then under 17s uh, up to under 23s is, is professional development. Um, but we're operating in that what you may call kind of elite arena anyway and we don't have other teams taking our players for other games and stuff like that the big thing I took from the report really and, and uh, we won't go too much into it now is how unique the GA is in terms of the club the county the schools uh, like players are getting pulled and dragged in all different directions and I like how you're, you're attempted, the report is attempting to put the club at the centre of it all, but also, and importantly, I always think, there is a place as well for the extremely talented young players as well, and they, they need to be nurtured also. Yeah, I think if we think about it as a kind of a, a stretch model, so if, if you take your best players, uh, obviously need to be stretched so that they actually will fulfil their potential. At the same time, there's participation within the GA is, is a huge driver, obviously. Um, so the club has to be central to all things going forward. I think the framework actually puts the club very much central in, in terms of player development, but at the same time realises that there are talented players and even players that we, you know, how do we decide what we could go into the big debate? How do we decide what talent looks like? But players of potential need to get opportunity. And I think the idea of the framework is to allow people experience positive experiences, uh, not the idea of going to the academy, being deselected and being kicked back to your club. I hear this line all the time, going back to your club. What does that mean, going back to your club? You know, that, that, that sounds ridiculous to me. Um, I think the, the, the academy ex experience, we call it, is something that you, you, you go and experience. And if something else comes of it, great. And if something else doesn't come of it, you have all that positive experience to actually... Uh, put put into your career as you go forward uh, at club level. Um, but I think a crucial piece is, 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 and we can get into it later on when we talk about culture, but the crucial piece is a very clear organisational core in the centre of player development across the GA. Because the GA is unique, you're absolutely right, Kieran. I don't know of any other organisation that's, that's dealing with, you know, uh, two games in terms of hurling football at one time across club, school and county for lots of players and also the possibility of playing up where people are playing on multiple teams in their club and school. Um, so like we've seen boys all over the country when we went to, to research all of this, uh, the data came back and there were boys playing on 11 and 12 teams, um, which is absolutely frightening. But the most frightening part of all that, and this is where the report is very strong, I hope, 
is that there's nobody directing who does what when. It's whatever is up next or who's first up, you know, first dressed, gets, gets, gets the call here. So I think the J have made a decision that we can't continue this. It may have, we may have got by with it in the past, but now we're very, very clear in saying if we want actual, actual player development to take place, we need to be very clear uh, in terms of our organisational core of who is doing what, when. And that's why you're starting to see these debates now around age grades, these debates around split seasons, these debates about uh, third level, these debates about second level. It's great to have the debates and ultimately come to a conclusion that makes things better for the players, not for us, not for administrators, but better for the players so that in time, and it's not going to take you know six months or 12 months, it's going to take time, we're going to have a very clear model of player development across the organisation. And I'd be very excited about that. Yeah, I think it's important that in the report you, you brought in uh, the governance, the uh, education, the different stakeholders, the sports science, um, you know, the games program. So in other words, you brought everything into a kind of an, a holistic development model because if you're to focus on one of the, those things and your games program lets you down, or your sports science is not there to monitor maturation and, and you know relative age effect and stuff like that. I think it will. I, I think it could have fallen down. So it'll be it'll be interesting to see how all that comes together now in the next kind of. Yeah, and I just I don't mean to hug the conversation, but I I think you're on. That's where the coach education is going to have to come in very very strongly, in terms of bringing those type of stakeholders to a generalistic holistic viewpoint on player development, right? Because what's happening is we're finding that people might have huge interest in one of those areas. So if you take the four corner model of the FA, Lambeau, uh, you might have huge strengths in one of the corners and that was what was driven. Whereas what we're now saying is that there's a place for everybody, but somebody needs to map out how this looks like for a player of 13 or 14 or 15 and what role do each of these stakeholders have at that stage of development. And I think to be fair to Shane Flanagan in his new role in Cove Park, he is very, 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 very committed to actually trying to bring the model of development to that uh, level. Now, it's not going to be straightforward or easy, but I think that's the desire. And, and as I say, I, I will be very excited about it. Yeah, no, good. I think um, some of the talent, the talent squads, the county talent squads have probably got a bad rep over the last few years as regards bringing young players of like 13 or 14 up to different parts of the county to, to go and train. They're not al allowed to play with their clubs. Um, you know, there, it, it's got a bad rep over the last few years, but like I know of, I mean, obviously Stephen O'Shaughnessy in Dublin has been doing an amazing job for the last, you know, decade or more than a decade, really. Chris Collins up in Derry, the lads in Wexford. Like you can have a very holistic, really, really good program there of the talent academies, whereby, I mean, the aim, and I hear it a lot, is keep as many kids in the system for as long as possible and to give them that experience, let's say, which, which is the, the right approach, I think. Yeah, and just on that, I suppose, John, uh, you know, this was the report group surveyed 32 counties, uh, traveled the whole country, and absolutely to a person saw the commitment, the, um, the ambition, the organization, the talent, the quality of the people involved, and could not for one second falter anything that was going on and weren't even going there. They weren't even attempting to do that. But absolutely, 
found people who were crying out for help, whether they were under 16 players or whether they were coaches, they were crying out for help. Uh, teachers sat in rooms that said they felt that alienated on their own. And yeah. uh, county coaches felt that they were under pressure to deliver results for the county so that they could get the next job. Um, so there were huge pluses to the academies. But I suppose the narrative that's been peddled is incorrect in a way in terms of that they're the, the most evil thing in the GA. They're far from that. But it's just the case that um, I think a bit more consistency of approach across the country has to be taken uh, whilst remaining cognizant of the individual context of the 32 counties and the cultures within them. So that's a, that's a, bit, of a, that's a bit of a balancing act as well. Yeah, absolutely. Good, good question just came in there. So it, it's called, correct me if I'm wrong, Brian. Uh, the GA uh, Talent Academy and Player Development Report 2019. Um, you'll find it on ga.ie in the coaching section, I believe, which I hope Shane Flanagan and the lads are going to renew and improve and everything. Um, it's over on our website as well, dlsportscience.com. Um, in the blog section, Brian has previously written a, a blog about it, which is a very interesting kind of introduction to it. And I, I think everybody should definitely take a read of that. Um, Okay, we, we leave that there. Barry, uh, uh, or sorry, Shane, I'm just interested because I hear a lot about people always say children are not small, small adults. And it's a saying that you hear a lot in the kind of nurseries and academy settings and everything like that. In its, in its kind of simplest form, why, there, why does there need to be a different approach to coaching the child versus coaching an adult, let's say, which you, you do both, obviously? Yeah, yeah, I suppose they're, the needs are very different. I mean, fundamentally, the reason why children play come and play sport is to um, meet the friends, have fun and, and, and play. And uh, once those needs are met, we generally see uh, children remaining in sport. Um, an interesting study there, I was looking at whether in that 38% of girls and 39% of boys dropped out of sport because it wasn't fun anymore. And like that is just a massive statistic in that they simply dropped out because it wasn't fun. So like we're not in control of, of so many things as coaches, you know, but we are in control of the, the fun element. We're not in control of school, the school environment, the home environment, other external environments. But when they come to us um, on that Tuesday or that Thursday, we are in control of the, the fun warm-up that we do. We control of how we coach, how we like autocratic or you know, are, are we bossy? Are we, are we demanding? Are we more relaxed? Is it a shared responsibility? So that's so important to keep children involved in, co in coaching and, and coping skills too. I mean, you know, some, some children are, are that sub every single week. You know, they expect to be a sub and they are a sub. But no, no child should be a sub every single week. I mean, the rights of the child is, is to fundamentally play, you know. I think yeah. Wales brought that in a few years back, actually. The rights of the child is to play. So, like, every child deserves equal game time and inclusion and to be involved in a team. So, I suppose their role as coaches is to keep as many playing as possible for, for as long as possible. And, you know, to create this love of sport that's far more important than, than any medal or any trophy that we pick up. And, you know, healthy children make healthy adults, I suppose. So, like, their role is so important to just, like, stick to our values because, you know, as a coach, you, you kind of, you kind of are what your values and there's such a 
sort of depth of coaching that goes beyond picking up medals, beyond picking up trophies, beyond picking up leagues. Because, you know, we're, we're not coaching, like, you know, little athletes. We're coaching little children, you know, yeah. you know little, pe- little people. And uh, it's just the way of the child to, to play and to be included and to be involved. And, uh, yeah, that's just so important that we just chill out a little bit as coaches too. And we're not coaching in, you know, the All-Ireland Final at under 11 or under 12. And, you know, looking at... Looking at children, if they if, if they lose a game, if they win a game, they get over it very very quickly. You know, but you know, it's only sport. It really is the only sport. It's only fun. It's recreation and it's enjoyment. Yeah, well, it's, some coaches I've always heard people will come back and say that well, children are inherently competitive. Like if you get a a bunch of kids in a playground, you know, doing whatever little game, whether it's kicking a can. <laughs> against the wall or whatever like they'll bring that competitiveness to the sport or to the game and we're we shouldn't be the ones to kind of inhibit that and to stop that yeah yeah children are, are naturally competitive and adults are too i don't know any of us who like losing a, a game of cards a game of football a game of golf of course we are but maybe we're all naturally competitive but maybe we're all just not naturally cooperative mm. and maybe it's that cooperation that we're trying to develop in children you know like a, a ball between one a ball per child is brilliant for skill development but like there's a depth of sport that goes beyond skill development there's like a ball between two or a ball between three you know i'll pass to you because i know you'll pass it back to me it's that empathy and that trust that we can try and develop in sport so yes we're all actually competitive but at the end of the day it's, it's a team sport that we're playing in and we're looking at children you know, getting the head up, passing the ball, delivering the kick pass, and knowing that they might get that ball back in time too. So that cooperation can be developed in training because sometimes, you know, that, that's not there. And we look at games, for example, we look at a standard under eight match and it's nine the side, is it maybe? And you have like, you know, 18 children on the pitch and generally you might have two or three children dominating the ball at that age and you might have 14 or 15 children making getting a, a touch or two and a half, you know, and that's probably um, what we need to work on too. And I, I'd love to see us with a reduction of numbers per, per team at under eight and under nine, you know, because yeah. at the end of the day, it's about including more, involving more. And if we reduce, like I had a situation a couple of years ago where I had a commodity game actually, and both teams had 12 players. And the coach and I, a very cooperative person with good dialogue, with good communication, I said, what do you think about if we don't play the full pitch and we split the pitch in half and we play across the pitch 6v6? So suddenly we're splitting the team in half. We're maximizing opportunity for everyone to be involved. We're maximizing the holistic side of it too, but also the technical side. There's a lot more striking. There's a lot more hooking. And it was brilliant to see more children involved and there's various studies around like the basketball study around that too around small sided games and it suggested that they went from a 4v4 to a 2v2 and there were 60 percent more technical opportunities in that game 60 percent from a 4v4 to a 2v2 now of course 2v2 is not very practical for GAA or for hurling a football or camogie but it's really worth considering when we see so many children on a pitch, it really is worth considering that. What can we do to improve this? And, and I know logistically it's a bit tricky, an extra pitch, maybe an extra referee, but the young ages, you know, keep it more involved, keep it more included, and then we'll retain them as we go through the ages. Mm. 
Yeah, absolutely. Our Arsenal Foundation phase in their academy have an interesting one where part of the curriculum is cooperative games. Now, I haven't seen exactly what they do. I must ask Des Ryan about it, but he doesn't like giving out too much stuff. The, the boys up in Arsenal are quite close about what yeah. they do and some of that. But it's quite an interesting concept and you touched on it, Shane, just some sort of cooperative game. And like, if you think about it, it may not even include a football or a hurling slitter. It, it might be something completely different. And it probably links in a little bit with the concept of practicing multi-sport, doesn't it, at, at that young age as well? Oh, for sure. I mean, like specialization is something that's really, really topical at the moment. But like, um, I love incorporating other sports into my training, whether it's with, whether when regardless of what age group it's with, you know, like games like like handball, basketball, like tag rugby, like really fun warm up games. Like tag rugby is just incredible for developing that little step or that bit of agility. It, you know, and games like chasing here on simple games like chasing. I don't know anyone who doesn't like the, a warm up for a game of chasing. It's incredibly fun. And those movement patterns are the exact same movement patterns that we see in a game of football or hurling at Mogi. It's multidirectional, high intensity, a little bit chaotic, great for peripheral vision, great for spatial awareness. And that's really the movement we've seen in the game. So those, those sort of high intensity, fun games. Handball is another great game too. And handball where you can't move in possession. So I played that in training a little bit where you have 6v6 and it's handball. And when you receive the ball, you, uh, you can't move. So what we're seeing there is a really um, a good increase in like, children looking around them, scanning the area, peripheral vision, where's my teammate? And they have to move. So we stop that one player dominating all the time and everyone else feel included because they know they have a good chance of getting the ball. Yeah, yeah. I think it's good as well because it, it allows your players to get a little bit of a taster of other sport that, you know, they may have always wanted to go and play a bit of rugby or, you know, something else, um, and a different sport. And it just, it allows them to kind of just tap into that a little bit, you know, um, uh, without kind of losing them completely to, to another sport. Like the, the 10,000 rule, uh, the 10,000 rule, our rule has largely been debunked, but there is something still in that, like you need to practice at your sport. If you're to master your sport, you obviously need time um, and lots of contact hours as well. So I can see obviously both sides <clears throat> of that. Um, but the crossover, yeah. the crossover of, of skill sets is incredible. You look yeah. at it like a badminton player and how they have quick feet and good reactions. Of course, that's applicable to the Gaelic games. Look at um, you know, the vision of a basketball player. Have some of the greatest GA players you've had have been high-profile basketball players, you know, yeah. great, great spatial awareness to set up goals. Um, yeah. You look at the value of playing, of, of, of even if playing soccer and that ability to like get your head up and scan around and see what's around you. Like, yeah. so it's invaluable when it comes to Gaelic football, not, not, yeah. not to mention so other sports. So playing a broad range of sports, I really, I really would uh, encourage, uh, encourage my own children to play as much as possible. Yeah, I think the interesting thing as well, like I, I, I did it with the London senior team as well, where we actually had a basketball night. And a lot of the, like, aside from the technical aspects, but a lot of the tactical outcomes that you're looking for, like compactness in defense or, you know, rotation of your, you know, center forward and, and midfielders, like you can teach that through basketball or through another sport as well. So you can either 
go and have a full session of basketball or maybe like if you have the facilities of it um, or with rugby or whatever, you can just drip, you know, 15 minutes as kind of part of your warm-up or, or just after your warm-up. For sure, yeah. And like you look at what we've taken from basketball in recent years has been the screen uh, to get the mm-hmm. shot off. So because of the pack D, the way Gaelic football um, has changed and evolved over the last few years, you see a pack D. So what we're doing now is looking at people um, looking to see if they can impact the game without the ball. So that little screen, you see an awful lot of diagonal movement um, in around the D, so the shooter can get the shot off. And yeah. we got that from basketball, of course. And uh, again, looking at new sports, looking at how they get the shot off in basketball, it's fascinating. And we have seen that creep in a little bit to GA. Yeah, well, I mean, it famously came in with Jason Sherlock, didn't it? Into the, into the Dublin team, I think you could, you could certainly see aspects of his playing and, and coaching experience. Shane, a, a quick question came in from one of the gang there. Um, would you do a tag with a, a senior men's or a senior women's team in, as part of your warm-up? Yeah, again, just looking at the movement patterns of our games, I believe training is about replication of movement patterns of games, you know, and um, a replication of game movement patterns will be tagged, will be chasing. So um, that really prepares the body for the demands of the game. So, like, I, I don't know anyone who doesn't like the game of chasing as part of a warm-up. It's, it really stimulates you, no matter what, what age you are, really gets you going, it really gets you interested. It's fun. It is fun. And, uh, yeah. yeah, I've played uh, tag for warm-ups right away. Uh, right across the board yeah yeah I, I had an interesting day one day over in India with Terry Phelan and we, we ended up doing tag and there was a little bit of a breakdown of communication between the Indian lads the Brazilian the Spanish and the English but uh, we, we, we got there in the end Barry I'm just I'm just interested then what, what are some of the, the, the differences or the issues that you would have encountered from coaching that you know kind of young kids team um, and coaching that like older youth or, or adults? Like you, you have a lot of experience right across the ages, right across the phases. Yeah. Um, the first thing really, you know, is the is the attention span is, is a lot different, you know, with the, the smaller kids uh, as, as they get older. So, you know, when you're giving your instructions, uh, how you deliver really important, um, you know, your, your language, um, you know, the, what what you say is, is really important. I know that's important at all ages, but you know, keeping it quick and you know, I, I believe that you know, if you're going to explain something to a group of kids, you've about ten seconds to do it, yeah. and it's oh, go play again. Um, the content that ensuring max participation. Um, Shane spoke about it there. Um, a ball each. I'm a big believer in a ball each. Uh, for kids for skill development but chasing games as well um, I won't go on about too much but you know there's a role for everybody in a tag game yeah. you know, there's a role for taggers there's a, you're, you're running away from someone that sensation of getting chased as well and you know the the social interaction that, that it has you know do I help my friend or do I save myself those kind of things yeah. um, the different abilities so at young kids the abilities are going to be different you know senior hurlers they're all going to be good players, mm. same with footballers, any sport. Whereas if you're coaching um, an under eights, nursery, it doesn't matter. Um, you're going to have players who are very strong, maybe middle of the road, and then players who are very weak. So you have to find a role for all them kids as well. They have to be coached too. 
Um, it's a, it's a Barry. It's a real challenge, isn't it? Of like something. I, the first piece of advice I always give to any person who contacts me looking for advice in coaching or, or anything is just to get out there and coach and to coach the youngest of the kids as they enter into the sport because it's such a challenge. Like it's easy to tell an intercounty player, you know, advise them by kicking the ball over the bar. It's something else about trying to tell a fight or to, to, to teach and facilitate a five-year-old to do a hop or a solo or a, a kick or a strike. It's, it's, it's a real challenge, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And you know what you're going to have as well is you're going to have like different interests there. If you're coaching um, minors, well, adults, they're there because they want to be there. Mm. Coach your, your under eights, what you're going to have is kids who are mad to be there. You're also going to have kids who don't really want to be there. They're there because their parents want them playing. Mm. You know, you have to try and motivate them as well. Yeah. At the end of the day, you know, as a coach, what you want to do is you can't make them but you have to, you, your job, our job is to kind of make them want to be there. Yeah. If, 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 if you understand me. Yeah. Um, and then coaching adults, uh, minors even, you know, what, what's the, what's the focus? You're kind of focused starting on winning then. Mm. Whereas with children, it's all about development. It's all yeah. about, um, there's a great quote, an old lecture of mine, um, the, Martin Toms in, over in the University of Birmingham. He always says that, you know, what's success and what's winning? And it's a, he, he, he'd tell you, you know, it's not silverware. It's about your kids coming back week after week, season after season. Then you're winning. Yeah. You know, yeah. That's, that's it. You made, you made a great point, Barry, uh, actually, on following your question. Yeah. On, tech, on technical coaching, too young. Like I coach in, in the nursery, two, five, six, seven year old. And we, we show and catch and we bounce and we catch and we roll, you know. But like, did you ever try and teach a five or six year old a hand pass or the technical elements involved in a hand pass? You know, hold the ball in the hand you don't write with, you know, with the hand you do write with, draw back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, not, not to mention the solo, you know, point your toe in the air, um, kick yeah. the ball. It's so challenging for children. Yeah, That's yeah. why I, I think we're, we need to slow down development a little bit and really focus on the ages. Brilliant, listen to Brian there on the ages of five to eight, you know, that yeah. first phase. Make it that fundamental movement, run, throw, catch, um, hop, balance, coordination, agility, that, that good core fundamental movement skills are yeah. so important and not to rush into technical coaching too young. Yeah. I, I, I've had to, like when I was, it was early in my coaching career, whatever you want to call it, coaching hurling, you know, I was always, like what you said there, Shane, you know, what hand you write with and hold it up and I'd be go, you know, I want to hold the hurl in that hand, right? And then, uh, oh, that's right, very good. And I was just, you know, and they're looking at me going, what is this fella on about? You know, where it's just the language you use is just so important for those children. Like I yeah. say, you've got 10 seconds to explain to them and just being careful what you say. Show me your pencil hand, put that at the top and then let them off and play and let them swing or, you know, from a hurling point of view. And, yeah. um, and just, just for the hurlers out there, Something, uh, especially with the small kids um, in sessions, is, um, you know, the small hurley. You know, Martin Fogarty will tell you that it doesn't really matter or, you know, to that effect, you know, he can either do it a certain way. But, you know, for me, it's the small hurley, the better. Um, you know, they're going to have, especially new kids, they're going to have a cage around their head, right? Uh, some of them helmet for the first time. You know, it's important to make them feel comfortable as well in, in their surroundings. And nice, small, little, light hurley. 
um, with their with their helmet and then let them off and let them play. Um, whereas yeah. as they get older, that's not uh, you know with adults it's just can't play have your session ready. There's so yeah. much it's so much. Uh, more challenging coaching the children. Yeah, yeah. Do you know I'm I'm I've got, I'm in a new I'm in a whole new phase of my coaching because I have a five month old six month old little boy uh, born in the summer and I'm, I'm looking at him and he's at the stage where he, and I'm sure you guys uh, know all of this already. Um, pure exploration, absolute exploration of everything of the curtain. He's interested in the curtain, so it's like okay explore that go and have a look at it or a picture on the wall and he thinks that that little you know uh, giraffe is his friend on the wall and yeah. it's it's it nearly it brings me back to like coaching those really young kids where all they want to do is explore and experience and you need to think of innovative ways to allow them to, to you know to flourish in that environment to let them i suppose barry like you're saying in some ways to let them make mistakes to let them find their own way and then you probably need to just step in and facilitate, facilitate mm, them and yeah. guide them along, isn't it? Yeah, and my, my fellow is at the stage now where he's exploring, uh, jumping off the couch and seeing what happens. So, uh, yeah. Nice. <laughs> just, yeah. Just, on, just on that, if I can come in there. Yeah. Um, I agree completely with, with Shane and Barry uh, regarding that early phase. And uh, in the framework that's coming, it's referred to as the F1 phase. The F1 phase for Gaelic games coming could be the same as the F1 phase for rugby, soccer, mm. badminton, hopscotch. It doesn't matter. Yeah. That phase, uh, if you went to one of those sessions and that phase, you shouldn't, be careful saying this, but you shouldn't really be able to say it's hurling or it's football or it's whatever. It should be so general uh, and so focused on those fundamental movements that the children don't have uh, naturally at the moment, unfortunately, for the last 20 years. Um, <laughs> That's what the focus is on. And then the second piece, as they move out of F1, when they've mastered those fundamental movements, we need to be teaching them the game. So I have this huge debate with people all the time regarding, and especially hurling, regarding technique and learning technical skills over the actual skills, what I call the skills of the game. Because the game involves understanding and learning how to play the game is a huge continuum from learning how to play chasing and invasion games to actually learning how to play a game of hurling and football. So there's a huge amount of learning there. But if we can actually take what Shane and Barry have said together, um, I'm brought back to the coaching games conference last year when Chris van der Hagen from Bel Belgium FA made his presentation. If any of you haven't seen it, go and watch it. I think there's a window for us here in terms of uh, moving out of the FMS and F1 stage and into the F2 stage where they start in Belgium with a 2v2 and then they teach a 3v3 where we're playing in triangles, all right? So suddenly, in, and the way Hurling is going, if you're watching all the matches this year, they're playing in triangles. All the good teams are playing triangles all the time and the triangles are getting smaller and smaller over the last five, six, seven years because people are keeping possession uh, uh, you know, at all costs. So... When we move into the F2 stage, I think with this ideal stage where we can teach games uh, based on the learnings from the F1 stage and, and all those invasion fun games. And now we're moving into 2v2, 3v3. The next one is 5v5. And then we can teach a 7v7 where it's two triangles. And ultimately, 
ultimately we're building up, building up and layering up to get to the stage where we can teach a 15 versus 15 game. But that's way down the tracks. Um, and I think that, the, and I agree with Shane and Barry what they've said, if we can keep these games as small as we can and then interject with technical parts that we want to teach within the game though, not in isolation. Um, I think that's a, a huge part of where we need to go to. So the model is there already. We just need to adapt it to Gaelic games. And it's 2v2, 3v3, 5v5, 7v7, probably 9v9, probably 10v10, then 11v11, and up to 13v13 and 15v15. Yeah. Um, whereas at the moment, we're jumping from probably 4v4 up to 7v7, up to 9v9, and then up to 11v11 at under 12, or 13v13 13, 13 at under 12, and then 15 aside at under 13. Yeah, there's a, there's a huge change needed there. Yeah, definitely, Brian. You better be careful if the lads down in Tullaher and the Roar in County Kilkenny now hear you saying that a hurling session looking like a football session, they'll they'll have your head for it. But it's interesting in, in QPR we would have something very similar. And the things that Shane and Barry are saying there about the fundamental movement patterns and the hop and the jump and the mm. brace and the squat and the lunge and everything like that. Like we're still doing that at aged 18, 21 into first team level, you know, players who have played or will play in the Premier League. There's no difference. Like you're still talking about that foundation all the way on. And I think as, as you say, Brian, it's just adding a layer of complexity. And I think fo soccer or professional football, whatever you want to call it, it does it well in that they spend a lot of time on technical, uh, technical practice within the session as well as games and little match scenarios and the 1v1, the 2v1, the 2v2, the 3v2, the 4v2, the, the 5v3, you know, the 7v5. All these little scenarios that when you break down the game and you look at the video and you see, it, you know, 2v1 defenders moving the ball out from, from the right back position, you say, well, that's, we do that on a daily basis. That's your, your boxes or your rondos or, or whatever you say it, you want to call it. So I think it's, that foundation can actually continue on right up to the highest level, you know, senior inter-county. You just add a layer each time. But the foundation is so important, Fiona, that you know, yeah. like, if having that foundation and, and research shows that like, the mastery of these basic skills is achievable by age eight. It is achievable by age eight. So in our nurseries, age five, six, seven, eight, we can achieve these fundamental movement skills, the running, jumping, throwing, catching, hopping, landing. But they also suggest that they plateau by age 10. And it's quite challenging after that. So if we get to the stage where we're not rushing into skills, we're not skipping fundamental phases, and we're focusing on that movement first and skills second. That's also important for us um, moving forward, not skipping phases, not rushing to elitism, not putting jerseys on six and seven-year-olds and asking them to play a match too young because they're simply not ready. I don't know any six-year-old or maybe seven who's ready for a match yet because the, the concept of, of like movement or spatial awareness or, or, or kicking to a teammate, we're only developing those movement skills. Mm. So the, the, the issue around like balance and landing and throwing and jumping, they are so important for that age because they do plateau by age 10 and they're very really hard to get them back according to research. Yeah, yeah. Can I can I ask you a question, Shane? Because one of the lads um, in the in the chat there just asked about like 
SNC, and I know you've spoken a lot about this on Twitter, and it's, it's really interesting stuff, like the concept of SNC or physical development throughout the ages, and, and how does that look? I mean, I can come from the more sports science, you know, um, strength and conditioning side, but you as a coach, like what kind of stuff do you implement at that kind of young nursery, but also into, into the, the, the youth levels? I suppose, again, it, it's about phases. And when, when you look at like, fundamental movements, like within fun games, mm. there is the squat, there is the lunge. You know, if you play games like chasing games or, or crawling games, they're not, we squat naturally, we lunge naturally. So it's incorporating these, um, I suppose, fundamental movements within our games. Yeah. And of course, then as the children get a bit older and move towards teenagers, like, we, we use the words SNC a lot, but I love the term like, like athlete development and not just SNC at 14 or 15. Like, why not like nutritional development, education, um, lifestyle, um, rest, recovery, and um, the importance of, I think, some of mentioned earlier on, maybe it's fine not, not playing for like 11 teams at that stage, too. So, just the importance, just, just the overall education. And not just focusing in on SSC as as important as they are. I know for well on the background of sports science too, and I, and I know how important that SNC is. It's fundamentally important, especially with maybe a lot of sedentary um, behavior we might see nowadays. But uh, the idea of incorporating everything under the one umbrella and maybe athlete development and educating them across the board. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think in, in the youth phase, just quickly, because I think it, it, we could do another podcast and we probably will about uh, youth SNC and we'll get Ross and some of the lads involved. But just from my own point of view, like in, in the professional setups, we would do SNC from the ages of, let's say, 12 up. It's all about technique. It's out on the pitch. It's the, the, the movement patterns. It's the squat, hip, uh, hinge lunge, jump, landing. It's very, very basic prime, primal movements. And the question came true about, well, can you load that? Do you want to put weights? If the technique is great, that's fine. Um, but you need to think about the load that they're going through on the pitch in terms of their training. And also remember for boys between the age of 12 and 14, they're hitting their growth spurt, their peak height velocity, it's called. Um, so you need to be careful about that. Girls a little bit younger from 11 to 13. Um, so look, you can you can load them up a little bit, but as long as their technique is good. But remember, you probably need somebody with some SNC knowledge. If you don't have that, as Shane said, just the the, the the movements, the fun games, and stuff like that will take care of plenty, plenty of athletic development. Shane, I'm going to jump back to to yourself about. Um, I mean, I read your, your, your blog post just earlier today and you speak about looking through the eyes of, of the kids and the concept of inclusion and exclusion and that kind of idea that as adults, we can probably deal with exclusion. You know, we can compartmentalize it or speak to people about it, whereas with children, they really struggle to do that. And it probably leads into that more holistic concept of coaching not just the player but also coaching the person as well the child yeah yeah it's it's like not every child that comes up to our club has dreams of playing in Crow park you know yeah. like maybe maybe us coaches we assume they do but but they, they, they don't and some children children come training for so many different reasons you know children are training to 
to meet new friends, to, to, to socialize, as Barry said earlier on. Some love the matches, some love the games of chasing. Some might like you as a coach, and you could be a really positive role model as a coach for that child, and maybe that's what brings them up to training. So that concept of like uh, empowering the, the new parents and empowering children to, to have fun, to, to enjoy themselves, to feel important, to feel valued, and the little conversations that we can have with the, the holistic side of it, like, how are you today? You know, it goes such a long way. Knowing every child's name is something that's very, very important too. And, you know, that way they do, you've got personal connection and you're building relationships with the parents and you're, you're trying to, you know, encourage children to, to come back all the time. So the holistic side of it is, is, is so important too because I think I read somewhere that out of the 100 children in, in every club, one will play inter-county. So just the one. So we've 99 other children who could play such a massive role in their local community, in their club, a, a chairperson, or they could be a great coach, or they, they, they could be a treasurer of the club. But there's lots of different roles for everyone in the club. And I suppose focusing, obviously we've got a responsibility to facilitate all the children, including the, the children who may have, who may be really, really high achievers. But they are a small minority. They're a small minority. And the importance of, facilitating all the children, meeting all their needs, to ensure you're giving them a positive outlook on sport, you know, and, and encouraging them to, to see sport as, as a good thing. And I love nothing, nothing better than meeting children that I coached they were 10, 15 years ago, and maybe they're 25 now or they're 30, and you see them out jogging, or you see them playing recreational uh, five-a-side football, and that lets you know that you maybe you have instilled a, a love of sport and a love of exercise and that, that they're still doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that leads in nicely. Uh, uh, Brian, you speak a lot about, I mean, you did your PhD about creating that environment or fostering that kind of environment about holistic coaching, like, like Shane speaks about there. But from what I can read, you nearly put the, 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 the coaching behaviours before that. So that if you can get good coaching behaviours, that helps to kind of foster and improve uh, the environment in which the player develops and performs in. Or have I picked you up wrong? No, no, no. <laughs> You've you hit the nail on the head. Um, ultimately, good people make good coaches because they make good choices. Mm. But the environment piece is, is, is where my interest lies, obviously. Um, because I think the whole research around player development has moved from a uh, a nurture space, uh, you know, a nature space to a nurture space, and now it's gone environmental space. Mm -hmm. So we had the big debate many moons ago over born with talent or, or not, and there was born with talent, it was a case of just simply drive on and away you go. Then we went to the, the, the big argument about, you mentioned earlier on, Ericsson's 10,000 hour rule, where we said you need this amount of training to be this good, which was debunked. And then Jan Cota came along with his, you know, playful practice and you know, um, you know, the backyard games and, um, you know, there's another approach in terms of uh, diversification rather than specialization. And that argument happened. But now the research is very, 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 very clear in the fact that the most malleable part of their development is actually the environment or the context where in which the development takes place. Right. So for me, um, it's a fascinating area in terms of how actually you can just take a club, how you can 
input uh, somebody as a coach and make sure that they're doing all the things they should do to get the end product uh, of a player reaching his full potential. Now, <laughs> the, the complexity of that is huge, but uh, my understanding and the way I'd look at it, I try to make it very, very simple. Um, we need to formulate a culture around the person, both the player and the coach, so that the coach ultimately makes the, the right choices for the player over a long period of time. And that's where we get this wrong. We get this wrong because we think it needs to happen today, whereas player development, we need to keep, as, as GB Hockey call it, we need to keep the end in mind. So we continuously need to keep the end in mind and take the pressure off people so they're allowed to make decisions uh, over that, that have the player at the centre and it's over a long period of time. Um, so I suppose that's where it gets down to the nitty-gritty then of, of kind of culture and where that fits in. So if we, if we take environmental effectiveness, and I don't know if I explained this quite well, earlier on, but you start off with your preconditions. So what, what are the preconditions in the club? Do you have enough money? Is it, is it, is it Chelsea or is it, is it, you know, are you in Division 4 or, or are you... Kilkenny. Scuntarp. Yeah, like Are you Kilkenny in terms of the, the hurling tradition or are you Leitrim? Or whatever the case is. So you have preconditions and then you have the processes in terms of the training and the competitions that the player is exposed to. And then you have this working on top of all of those things and the most dry, driven factors are, are the organisation culture within the environment. So for me, that's the fascinating piece. So how do the good clubs and the very good clubs, so how does Cross McGlenn do what they did? How does Nemo Rangers do it in Cork? Um, you know, how does Corrifin, it might be a couple of reasons, I'm not sure, do what they've done over the last three or four or five years? So what has happened? Um, and the answer is, is usually based around organisational culture because it is very clear that this is what we do around here. Mm. And outlying behaviour then isn't tolerated because that is very clear that that's not what we do around here. So suddenly everybody is very clear on what it is that we must do to coach in this context. Yeah. So everybody is very clear how we should coach in our club when our culture is very, very strong. We get the culture piece wrong and then there's a lack of clarity and you can coach whatever way you want to. Yeah. So if we, if we take it actually to its, its fine pieces, Kiran, we talk about maybe three levels of culture. We talk about, you know, that, that, that impression you get when you come into the club. So what does it look like? Are everybody wearing the gear? Is there symbols? Is there signage? Is there crests? Is there whatever? And that's the first piece. And then the second piece is the espoused values. So I think Shay mentioned values earlier on. So as an individual, you probably have your own value set, but a club or a county has to espouse values. So we're all saying the same things. We all believe this is what it is we're after. But ultimately, the, the final piece are the basic assumptions, the bits that's way down in your head, your actual behaviours. So what actual behaviours are you actually carrying out? Do they align to the espoused values? Do the espoused values align to the artefacts and the symbols and, and that first level? So when you get those three aligned together, like steps of the stairs, you have a clear, strong culture. When you have a clear, strong culture, you influence the coaching processes and the preconditions almost, because people, you know, the preconditions will improve. And ultimately, individual development and team development will flop into environmental effectiveness uh, in terms of a positive way because of getting that culture piece right. Yeah. 
No, it's a difficult thing to explain on a on a. On no, a, no, it's it's. It, it is. I I think I think and it, it's a really really fascinating area. I think mm-hmm. an interesting one when when I started with with the London senior team at the very beginning, and I was thirty two, fresh into you know management and everything like that. I thought, right, let's get the coaching right, let's get the sports science right because that was my my area that I came from my day job. Get the medical right, whatever. And then that will prepare the team. And the longer I spent in the position, the more I realized that obviously you, ha- you have to get those right if you're, go- if you're a smaller club or county and you're trying to punch above your weight. But the importance of that environment, core values, mission statement, uh, uh, vision, objectives, you know, the, the goal setting as well, if you want to do that. It was massive. You know, I kind of realized over time that at the beginning, I thought, well, that's a little bit wishy-washy for me. And, you know, I want to get into the science and the coaching. Let's just get out onto the pitch and do what we have to do. But over time, I learned, I think, probably the hard way after many, many defeats with London, uh, the importance of that kind of, you know, just the shared vision. And as well that it's easy to say those things out. It's easy to put it up on the dressing room wall and everything. Do you live it as a player and do you stick to your core values as a coach, for instance? Yeah, and I think yeah, you've hit the nail on the head again in, in terms of, you know, those in-your-face stuff. They're the easy things. That's the level one of culture where you put up these lovely sayings and these lovely mottos and these lovely pictures. Um, and, and that's fine. That goes up, right? The next level of that then is actually, you know, people espousing values. So telling uh, and and clearly, clearly articulating that this is what we're we're about, and we all share in these values. But the final piece is actually the behaviour. And I suppose if I could sum it up in a story, uh, I remember talking to Billy Morgan a long time ago. Uh, you know, a brilliant, brilliant, obviously a brilliant, brilliant cop and a brilliant, brilliant GM man, probably most particularly a brilliant, brilliant Nemo man. <laughs> and he he was the guy in that club who actually one of the guys, one of one of two or three people who really made the club. But he told me um, when I was chatting to him that he was at an under-14 game uh, say the previous week and one of the coaches who was in charge of the under-14 team wasn't a die-in-the-wool Nemo guy who would come through the, the ranks. It was one of the parents. And at halftime, um, at halftime they, were, I, they were winning the game and the coach brought on four or five subs that he had right, to give them game time. And after about 10 minutes of the second half, because he had weakened the team, uh, they were losing the game. And another parent came down to the fence and put the coach under huge pressure to put back on the players that were taken off. Mm-hmm. The coach said, OK, we're going to win the game if I put them back on. So what's he do? He lines them up to put them back on. And, he said, and Billy said to me, he went down and he intercepted the coach and said, that's not what we do around here. Under no circumstance are you to take those children off. Right? Yeah. So the coach, obviously, being, it was Billy, so he, he did what he was told to, left the players on, they lost the match, and it made no difference, right? Um, the point being is the culture and the drivers of culture and the representation of culture within a club, who those people are, who are those chiefs, right? And how they drive the culture at the same time in terms of the same approach, um, it suddenly becomes very clear to everybody that this is what we do around here. So the level one artifacts, the pictures on the wall of Nemo winning all these county championships, married to number two about we all give, in Nemo we, we, we 
it doesn't matter up to minor, everybody plays, everybody gets equal game time, to actually the actual behaviours, that is what we do. So if you can align those three, suddenly you have a club or an organisation that is actually uh, matching its values and artefacts to its actual behaviour. And the coaching part then is the easiest part, right? Because we all know there's content out there to beat the band. Right? So we can, we can bring in whatever content we want. But if we're within a, a culture that tells us and guides us and directs us to behave in a certain way, we can marry this brilliant new content to the behavior where the coaching can be completely holistic, where the player is at the center and where the club is putting no pressure on anybody to win anything of, of any importance until they're 17 or 18 years of age. Yeah. So that's where, that's where for me, the fascination comes around coaching and how culture can sit on top and either hinder the coaching or actually support it. Yeah. So you hinder it in clubs where the culture is poor and you end up with these guys who will do anything they can to win. Are you supported by having a very strong culture that says this is what we do around here and this is how we do it? Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting, Shane, just to, to go back with, to you about when you mentioned about exclusion before and like that topic of bringing on and off subs and stuff like that. I mean, I was with an academy previously where players may not, they'd be brought along as subs and may not come on at all. And they were told that, well, this is elite level and this, you know, this is preparing you for the future and this is football to the stage where the academy I'm at now, where we bring, we sometimes bring two subs and we bring on those two, you know, with a good significant portion of the game to, to um, left. And if there's an injury, well, then we play with 10 men because there's learning for those players to play with a man down. And, you know, there's lots of different learnings at all stages. But the point being that if you're being brought to a game, you're there to play, aren't you? You're not there to sit on the bench. No, no, that's why we call them uh, go games. Uh, everyone gets to go. <laughs> yeah. You know? And uh, that's so, it's so true. That's why they are brought in. And I would love if we got to the stage where maybe... Um, we, we, we revisit, revisit the amount of players per team as we discussed. That would be a wonderful stage. But like, I was fascinated listening to Brian there about, about club philosophy and club culture. Like, that's so, so important that the club, when new coaches come into the club, maybe they're given um, a set of guidelines or expectations or a philosophy about what the club is about. So in this club, we want every child to, to get equal game time, every child to yeah. be included. To be included, every child to get to play in goal, back, forward, yeah. midfield, and um, every child to maximise their ball contact. Because you know, here's a scenario in, in a club. You know, let's say the under nine coach thinks the children need to get fit, and uh, he wants he wants to run laps. The under ten coach is brilliant and encourages inclusion and chasing and small sided games. The eleven coach maybe thinks that. 12 be 12 and training is okay. The under 12 coach, they might be really, really brilliant at empowering new parents and they've got a great setup, you know. So, like, if everyone's doing something different, as Brian said, there's not that continuous philosophy or continuous expectation. So, the importance of coaching committees or club committees just to filter down their expectations to new coaches or, or to new parents about what's expected. I think that's a really, really good way of, um, you know, delivering information about what's expected and what the club 
wants to see on a regular basis. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's absolutely true. Barry, a question came through about small-sided games. And I know you, 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 you spoke uh, in your blog post previously from a quote from Bernstein about repetition without repetition, which I, I really like that quote actually about games. So maybe first of all, you can mention, explain that concept. And secondly, somebody asked about, uh, are there any negatives to doing small-sided games with young children? Like in, in terms of, is that what you should be doing even after those young ages of under seven, under eights, under nines, that you can still do small-sided games, which I presume, yes, you can, obviously. <clears throat> yeah, definitely. But going back to the Bernstein um, quote there, um, repetition without repetition. Yeah, so um, they, so if, Dave Allred, right? So he he's a very world-renowned coach. Um, Johnny Wilkinson, Johnny Sexton, um, Francesco Molinari, and he'll tell you that you know if you're repeating the same action to try and get better and better, your technique will suffer. If it's you know if all you do, let's say curling, right, hit the ball over and back constantly, uh, it's going to weaken your your technique. So the idea from Bernstein was that you you repeat the strike in action or the kicking action, whatever sport, uh, but in, in different ways. So basically, the repetitive action should be making a decision. Th that's my kind of understanding of it. Yeah. So that comes into you know game-based activities where you, um, if you're working on your striking or your kick passing, where you game where the the players are constantly kick passing. But there's a bit of pressure on you. Um, my my favorite quote, and I think I had it in the same blog. Um, I read, like most people, read lots of coaching stuff and listened to podcast stuff during lockdown. Uh, I read Dennis Burkamp's autobiography, and he said that every every pass must have a thought. And I thought that's brilliant, you know. And this, you know, our job as coaches is to kind of stand, not to numb it. So that's where I am big believe in repetition without repetition. It's, it's making a decision should be the, the repetitive action. What, what, what did that mean to you? Like, because everybody would take their own meaning from that. But let's say from Dennis Burkham's, hmm. um, every, every pass must have a thought. What, what did specifically did that mean to you as a coach, for instance? So for me, it's, um, let's say I'm on the ball. Um, and if I'm passing it over to Brian all the time, the, the coach is telling me where to pass, where to run, making every decision for me. Mm. Whereas um, if I'm passing it to, to Shane or I'm passing it to Barry or to Brian or to Kieran, it's, it's because he's in a better position or because I can get the return or because he's making a run um, yeah. a certain way. You know, yeah. So the player's making a decision. Yeah. Um, it, it might turn out to be a bad decision, but it doesn't matter. You know, I always find it funny that, um, you know, people go, oh, he's, he's a poor decision maker. Well, I'd rather a poor decision maker in my team than a non-decision maker, a person who just wants rid of the ball, whereas at least they're trying to make a, make a decision. They're trying to do something creative. Yeah. And then that comes back to then, if I go on to the, just for a sec, the small side of games, absolutely for, for younger kids, um, you know, encourage the kids to, to be creative to try stuff. Um, when I was coaching, particularly with say um, 10s, 11s, 12s, I, I was coaching uh, a team, my, my club in, in Dublin was Fingalians before I moved back home to Tip. 
and uh, I started coaching a team up there and um, I just said, boys, there's no one going to give out to you on this team. You know, it's just, it's just going to be do what you think is right and express yourself. And if you're playing games and coaches getting on to you for uh, making a, a poor decision, they're not going to make decisions anymore. They're going to be afraid to have the ball and they just want to lose the ball. Whereas if you just encourage kids to, to express themselves and go and play, um, I think that's the beauty of games-based stuff for, for children. And yeah. whether it's three-on-three, three, and I've seen three-on-three's work, it's brilliant. I did a, a soccer, the PDP1 it's called, with the FAR yeah. two or three years ago. And you know they do three-on-threes, five-on-fives, and I think it's the same for, for, for hurling and football. Small-sided games, even overload games. You know, yeah. So if you play eight versus four, you know, it's just you're, you're, you're teaching the team of four, maybe more positional sense um, in a fun way. And, you know, fun should be the, the vehicle for learning. It shouldn't be just about having, not just about like having great crack, there must be a bit of learning too there. So yeah. the overload games are great. And then for the team of eight, um, there's more of a chance of getting the ball and having a bit of time to use the ball. Yeah, absolutely. Like yeah, very good. Well, one question that came in, and I, I'm, I'm aware of our time, guys, so we'll, we'll wrap up with a, 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 probably one question each, really. Barry, one question came in yesterday from one of the members, DSS members, about, it's probably, to be honest, it's probably my brother who has a little kid in Galway, <laughs> as a, a joke. But an under sevens or under eights hurling training session, I think in some ways, uh, novice coaches are, and maybe some senior coaches are more afraid of a session like that because they don't know what to do with them whereas they probably know they probably have some experience of playing at adult level or playing up to youth level so they know in general what a training session uh, would, would look like but to an under seven or under eight like is it a whole series of activities and games and some technique or what, what, what does it look like you. I suppose the ideal, like, like in a perfect world, we don't live in a perfect world, but you know, you'd want if you've got um, I worked in diff different clubs as, uh, as uh, when I was a GPO in Dublin and we were, I was in a small club where you might have, you'd be lucky to have you know, 15, 20 kids maybe if you're under 10s or your 8s right, and you might have two people with them as opposed to when I finish up in St. Bridget's where you could have 90 under 8s right and lots of coaches, so you've lots of stations and you're working on different skills and that, that, that's the ideal scenario. Yeah. Um, so lots of stations, lots of touches and stuff like that. But the reality is that it doesn't always work out like that. So what I would say is particularly to players who are going back into their club, um, you might be their first team or come down to help in the nursery or whatever it is, is that anyone that would st study, and the lads I'm sure are aware of this, um, so I've looked into it, you'd have come across uh, Kretschmer's six features of P and motor competence and, uh, or meaningful P, sorry, motor competence and fun and all that. But my two favorite were um, delight and personally relevant learning. So the delight is the, you know, knowing your players and recognizing if, it, if they're, they're doing well. And what I mean by that is delight for one kid might be picking her up on the run and sticking her over the bar, right? Delight for another child might be just the right foot in front of the left kicking the ball or holding the ball in their, in their right hand and kicking with the right foot and mastering that so recognizing that and yeah. and the second one personally relevant learning then is just um kind of 
describe it. It's it's like, why are we playing this chasing game? I was doing this with a fifth class the other day, and um, I asked him, what sports do you play? And there was a range. It was hurling, football, soccer, rugby, basketball. And I was explaining to him that we're playing this chasing game. It was a tag game and why it's beneficial to them. You know, this is going to help your hurling. This will help your football. Uh, so making it personal that way as well. Yeah. So that, that's yeah. the advice I give the coaches coaching the, the really young teams. They might be used to a certain way. And when they go back down and get a, re- a dose of reality with, yeah. with, with yeah. the smaller kids. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think we, we do a lot of that in the club as well about the, the individual learning plan. So every player has that plan, you know, devised by themselves and the coaches like facilitated whereby what they need to work on, what they enjoy, what they're good at, can they make it a, a move a strength to a super strength? So I think that's really that kind of individualization for the players is is really good. Shane, just last question for you. I know you're it's a kind of a topic that you're passionate about as well, is like retaining those players and trying to mitigate drop off of the the that teenage group, <laughs> which is such a challenge, and you can take whatever age group, you know, from 13 to, to 18 to 19. Like we do experience in the GA, like every sport, really, a massive drop off, don't we? But it, and maybe they'll come back in the future as adults at some stage. But like, what I suppose, can you speak a little bit about the, 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 the issue that we experience in the GA and maybe how to kind of mitigate against it? Yeah, yeah, there's an interesting piece of research done in maybe a year or two ago around the dropout and GA, and we looked at uh, by age 12, it was 25% of children that left GA. By age 14, it was 29%. By one third, were gone by 16 or 18, and then like 75% were gone by the ages of 21 to 26. So yeah. there's statistics that were in that report. Like, one of the most common questions I get through email or through Twitter is um, like, when do I start to get serious? <laughs> you know, when do I, at what age like, does it, do, do I have to get serious? But like, like, who says you have to get, who says you have to get serious? You know, like when it comes to play and sport and I, I think children are the experts, yeah. you know, and, and those who do, those who are ready to get serious, be it at 15 or 16, are the ones who, might take the footballs or the horse or the, or the strippers home and do their own practice in their own time. You know, like who says we have to decide when to get serious? And like, if we let children judge how like defeat is interpreted, we'll, we'll, we'll soon learn who the experts are. You know, they, yeah. they get over it very, very, very quickly. In terms of retention, like a light pitch doesn't just go, go on at 13 or 14 and then say, okay, let's get serious now. Yeah. You know, it, does, it doesn't work that way. Every single child is different. We have our, our late developers, we have our late bloomers, and it's about like, trying to retain them. And the philosophy of retention, I don't think changes from 8, 9, 10 to 13, 14, 15. Um, a positive environment, good coaching, um, smiling and saying hello, ensuring that they're with their friends, lots of scoring up opportunities or games and training. And yeah. You know, sticking to those values are what will keep children within clubs. So not just flicking the switch because maybe a fail is around the corner and you really think you need, you need to go four nights a week for, for this for a tournament. You know, it's about just keeping it all nice and simple, maintaining those needs of fun, of friendship and of play. Yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting concept because 
you see it a lot now in in even in the adult as well and you can you can associate it with you teams also of moving from that kind of transactional relationship where you're there to win and the players give the coach something and the coach give something back to the players to that more engagement and investment and you know if you think of like Klopp with Liverpool over the last few years they're absolutely invested into this journey together and whether they win lose or draw they'll probably enjoy the journey along the way isn't the journey the most isn't the journey the most enjoyable part you know we all yeah. remember training through the maybe the as adults through the winter night and yeah. a camaraderie and we get to a game and you know the season goes on for nine ten months but the journey is all is, is remembering that season and the memories made and what yeah. the outcome like none of us i wasn't blessed that i won loads of trophies as a player but i've unbelievably fond memories of the people mm. and the friendships made and they're still formed now so yeah. that's very very important too not everyone is lucky i mean one team out of 32 wins the championship you know yeah, yeah absolutely absolutely yeah you're right brian just final final word um I suppose in summary, really, where, where do we go from here within the GA now as regards like coaching and coach development? And I, I presume the report that you were part of is going to play a big part of that now in the next kind of six to 12 months. It, it feels like to me, counties are, and county boards or county committees, as they're calling themselves now, are kind of getting their houses in order that I see in the report talk about Croke Park sending its tentacles out into each county, to each county committee, and getting sports science help, getting uh, improving the coach education, uh, pathway managers. Like it seems to be kind of getting its house in order a little bit throughout each county. Yeah, Kieran, I, th I think, um, again, as an organization, you know, you. you GA relies usually on volunteerism and, and altruism and people giving of themselves to their community or to their county. And I think the GA can never, ever, ever lose that. But in terms of governance, I think the GA have to do something, and it's, it's all over the report, in terms of a linkage and a better linkage between the head office, right, which is Crow Park, the, the provincial structure and the county structure. And for me personally, and I'm only speaking on my own behalf here because I, I, I'm not employed by the GA, I'm employed by the Department of Education, but uh, for me it is very, very, very clear that it's not good enough anymore for counties or provinces to head off and just do their own thing. Everything, everything for me has to be centralised in terms of here's the policy, this is where we're going. And I think even in the last week or two, it's been very clear that, that the GA are coming with a different song. Uh, you know, last week, 13, 15 and 17, our Central Council became very clear that that's what counties have to have as their priority competitions, despite some counties not wanting it. And some counties are going to rebel against it. But finally, the GA are coming and saying, this is what's happening. Uh, they're also going to do the same with Coach Ed. They also have started with player development. And I would see that um, in time, as per our report, in time that there would be um, professionalized and a professionalized approach blended with the volunteers on the ground um, driving player and coach development across the country so that there is a consistent and similar uh, approach 
in every corner of the country. And I think when the J gets to that stage, I think a lot of the problems that we have now and a lot of the problems that were communicated to us on our journey around the country um, will be different. There'll be new problems. We'll still have problems, but there'll be new ones. And I'm not speaking here as an evangelist for the GA or coaching in games, but if nothing happens, then I and another 10 or 11 people would have wasted two or three years of our lives because, uh, you know, we did this on the guys that there was going to be change. And, you know, this committee was led by Michael Dempsey, and I'm not sure you know him, but yeah. he is the most genuine guy that you will ever meet and the most passionate GA person you will ever meet and hugely, hugely able. And, you know, I would think that the likes of Mick and others are the way forward for the association in terms of guiding us through this, this, this series of changes that have to come. Mm-hmm. Now, it's going to be very difficult. And, you know, the last thing I would say, Kiran, is that, again, you have to go back to context and culture and you have to understand what is the GA and what was the GA based on? It's, 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 it was based on a nationalistic uh, sense of, of, you know, pride and identity that began at the, at the most simplest roots of parish. And even though we're 140 years on, the simple roots of parish still wanting to get the better of the next parish so that we could look them in the eye in mass the following Sunday, that's still there. And that's where it becomes very difficult for us to instigate change in coaching because it means so much to win for people. It means so much to win. Uh, and this is a different sport, in my opinion, than everything else because it's so rooted in the parish. Um, so that's why it takes us a bit longer uh, to get these things over the line. But I, I, I would be... I would be absolutely hopeful that that you know that there is change coming. I see a lot of moving underneath the surface at the moment, in terms of trying to get things uh, prepared so the change can occur. And I, as I say, the next twelve months will either teach me that I'm a fool, or we'll be heading in a different direction. Yeah, yeah. Okay, brilliant. And I think just the the f- like the philosophy and the learnings and the good coaching practice like Shane and yourself and Barry have spoken about tonight. And I, I know, like we all know lots of coaches all around the country and in different counties who believe in that way of coaching and that philosophy about development and keeping everybody involved and let people play as being the most important aspect, participation in the GA and with the club at the centre. I think that can really help to kind of drive that change over the next um, year and, and, and few years I think as well okay uh, lads thank you very much so Barry thank you very much Brian and Shane it's brilliant to have you on I'm sure if you would like we'll get you on again at another stage just to kind of jump into a few specific topics a little bit more um, I hope we've covered most of the topics anyway around youth coaching but I know as you guys know there's so many questions you could speak about and, and topics and everything and teams um, we'll definitely get you back on and we'll, we'll jump into those things a little bit more. Thanks to all the DSS members who've, who've logged in um, and your questions, which were, were brilliant. I think it adds to the conversation and discussion really well. Um, give us your feedback. The, the podcast will be put out on Friday morning and then the video will be up on YouTube as well if you prefer to consume it like that. Um, thanks to our sponsors, Ripped 
app, which I'll have a quick word about after the uh, outro. I'll tell you a little bit about their services and stuff like that. And for everybody listening, guys, thanks very much. And uh, we'll, we'll speak properly again. Thanks, guys. Good job, Cheers. lads. Cheers, Cheers, guys. Thanks, Shane. Thanks, Brian. This episode is sponsored by Ripped, who have come on board with us. Ripped is a platform that connects coaches with their clients and athletes. Using Ripped, coaches can create individualized training programs and monitor their clients' progress via the Ripped app at www.ripped.app where they can track exercise, training loads, and very importantly, well-being data. RIPT is used by high-performance teams such as Swim Ireland and Kerry GA, and also by gyms and online coaches to manage their clients. We're using it ourselves for the new DSS online training service, where you can have your own personal trainer and SNC coach to help you get fit and ready for the season, or just lose weight and get fit. We have a special offer for coaches over on our website where you can get two months free access access to Ripped. Just head over to our podcast page on dailysportscience.com forward slash pod and you'll find a link to sign up for that two months free access. If you'd like some more information on Ripped as a service, just go to www.ripped.app to read more there. Thanks again, guys, for your support. The Locker Room Podcast is brought to you by dailysportscience.com, an online elite coaching and sports science service, membership service. Uh, You can search all the information and services over at dailysportscience.com. You'll see everything over there. I'm here with Ross and Joe. Lads, there's loads of stuff going on at the moment. Ross, we'll run through really quick. Ross, you've got a really interesting off-season coaches CPD series, video series for the members. Yeah, yeah, really good kid. So six part um, uh, presentation, six part presentation, six different topics that uh, are kind of out there on social media and stuff. And I'm kind of, let's say, doing three to four of them and, and you guys are taking the baton on that. So really good so far. We've had two released based on the individual training session and periodization. Uh, recorded one recently around developing the individual player. We've got one around the physical corner and then you guys are taking over the tactical side and also the environment and culture. So really good um, opportunity, especially with things going on in Ireland at the minute to learn and and keep sharing information. So really enjoyed that, really good feedback um, and they'll be released throughout the next six weeks. Great stuff, George. There's loads of Gaelic football and hurling practices going up as well. Yeah, there is, Kieran. Uh, every every week, there's uh, there are Gaelic uh, practices going up, <clears throat> and I know that Ross talked about. Um, I think I'm doing CPD session four, which is how to set up a team tactically. So um, uh, I'm putting up uh, some kickouts there, for instance, and some uh, defensive structures that coaches can kind of get get used to in the off season and plan plan to bring in maybe maybe next season. So yeah, lots of stuff there uh, coming up on the website in terms of practices. Good stuff. We've got an off season. A GA program as well in terms of gym program and fitness and running program as well uh, designed by Ben Smalley our sports scientist as well um, and overlooked by Ross as well head of performance so that's really good for all members so they're all exclusive members the last two things to mention then 
is the Locker Room webinar series, which is closed for exclusive for our DSS members. So that's every second Monday night, we bring on an expert to do a presentation, a PowerPoint presentation through Zoom. Everyone can dial in live and then ask some questions as well. It's been really popular and it's, it's a brilliant new initiative. We're always coming up with these new initiatives. The last thing then to mention is the buddy referral scheme. So that's where a member can uh, send, it, send a referral to their friend. The friend will get 25% off the sign-up fee and then the person, the member, will get access to one of the GA positional profile videos. So, Ross, we did them over the last few weeks. I think there's some good content there. Class content. I think it's a great initiative. Instead of just, you know, normally the person who refers someone doesn't get anything and the, the new member gets whatever the offer is. But this stuff is gold dust, in my opinion. You know, you get info on what uh, each position essential is and what you're looking for for each player and how to coach it. So it gives you real good information on, on developing the individual players in your team. Yeah, exactly. And remember, for members, it's less than 15 quid a month. Ross, that's less than a Ross Bennett haircut once a month to cut back those golden locks. And less than, I think the book I wrote four years ago still hasn't creeped up to 15 quid. So <laughs> you're getting so much for that, for sure. Yeah, and this hair, I only get a haircut once a year, Keir. So 15 pounds a year is not bad, I don't think. Yeah, the girls in the house here, Ross, they just said, what is the point in Ross Bennett if he doesn't have long, flown, blonde hair? They get disappointed exactly. when it's cut. I know, it's, it's coming back. It's coming back. <laughs> so yeah, the book, so for the price of Ross Bennett's book, which you should all go out and, and buy, I've forgotten the name of it now at the moment. But... I can tell you, kids, in injury <laughs> prevention and rehabilitation. Now, he never knew I was going to plug that on here, but I need <laughs> Christmas is coming up. I need some sales. Christmas is coming. I've got two copies of them here, Ross, so we can maybe we can sell that off secondhand to Joe. He might, yeah, he might be able to use it. You need them for the doorstop in those heavy doors of yours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Joe, I was just about to say that you, you'd need... Um, you'd need a, a few quid for the online dating, but the, the, those days are over for you. Uh, yeah, I think they are cured. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully. Good to hear. Good he tried to, hear. to keep it quiet, but those weekends in the New Forest, we knew you wasn't going on your own, Joe. Exactly. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was dodgy. It was dodgy. 15 quid, Joe, per month. Not much. Yeah, yeah 15 quid a month. Yeah, I've, I've had a look at, uh, I think, four or five of the positions, and I've never, ever seen, uh, you know, uh, as much detail in terms of the different positions in, in football in Gaelic football broken down into so much detail so there's lots of uh, as Ross said it's gold dust there's lots of great learning points there for coaches yeah. and managers great good stuff good stuff okay uh, enjoy the rest of the episode everybody the podcast remember dailysportscience.com and head over um, we've actually started a new offer for listeners to the podcast so just use pod 20 as a voucher code to sign up membership and you get 20% off as well. So for any new members out there or relapse members, just use pod 20 and you get 20% off membership. A good time, as the lads say, Ross was saying with all the new CPD and everything. So a good time to join up. Okay, enjoy.